1: there's so many things that we can do out of our privilege that's invisible to us and so then out of our loving kindness can we seek repair knowing Mm -hmm. that we're going to make mistakes and missteps and allow that to protect us that that devotion to loving kindness that eventually we can win one another's trust
0: welcome to the meta hour with sharon salzberg where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon.
2: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And today I'm talking with Jacoby Ballard. Jacoby is a social justice educator, yoga teacher, an author with 20 years of experience leading workshops, retreats, teacher trainings, and mentorship programs. He's the co-founder of Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn, created in 2008 as a space of healing and social justice. Since 2006, Jacoby has taught queer and trans yoga, a space for queer folks to Unfurl and Cultivate Resilience. And in 2014, he received Yoga Journal's Game Changer Award, followed by the Good Karma Award in 2016. Jacoby has been an advisor to the Yoga Service Council since 2014 and on the faculty of Off the Mat Into the World since 2016 and consults for Lululemon, Yoga Journal and Yoga Alliance. In 2021, he released his first book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation from North Atlantic Books. Warm welcome to the Meta Hour, Jacoby. Thanks so much for having me, Sharon. So I was trying to think, and time is so strange right now anyway because of obviously the pandemic and and normal kind of markers, maybe not being so prevalent, like travel every year to the same place or something. But I was trying to think, how long have we known each other? Gosh. (laughs) You know, it's like, the infinity stretching behind us.
1: Yeah, I think I met you just before I started the Interdependence Project Meditation teacher training and that I took in 2013. Mm -hmm. So I think we've known each other about 10 years.
2: Okay, right. And a really big congratulations on your book. Um, It's wonderful to see the fruits of your work come into book form. And I do want to talk about the book because it's tremendous and it's a great accomplishment but I thought we could start with a bit about your journey Sure. before we get to that. And how did you first come to spiritual practice and what did that look like for you then?
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. I began meditation as a senior in high school as a um, senior project. And it was mostly focusing on my breath and a little bit of mantra. Um, and about two years later, Um, I was mandated to take yoga by the registrar at my small college, um, which was because it was my last option to fulfill a wellness credit on campus. Um, I would say my meditation experience in high school, I was both a three-sport athlete and also by that time I had been surviving um, bullying based on my gender identity and queerness for about six years Um, so meditation made me an unstoppable free throw shooter and less consciously to myself, it enabled me to survive the bullying, um, just teaching me that there's something inside that can't be harassed, that, um, uh, can withstand people, people around me and their, their thoughts about me. Um, and then having been an athlete, uh, encountering yoga asana practice, um, I was, I was taught by the 70 year old woman named Lillian and, um, a couple of different things about learning yoga asana from a 70 year old. One is that she had lived a whole life and had, you know, a ton of life experience, uh, before me, um, and yoga had totally transformed her life. Which just, I just note that because it's very different than like being, uh, taught for the first time by like a 25 year old that's just graduated from yoga teacher training, um, and and also, you know, I was coming into yoga asana as having been a three-sport athlete, and Lillian could do things with her seventy-year-old body that just confounded me in my twenty-year-old body, and so that was like intriguing and interesting. She also um, offered yoga in a really gentle way. She was trained in hatha yoga, uh, which is not like pumping out the vinyasas and, and breaking a sweat necessarily, but more deeply. Um, Becoming aware of the body, which is, um, I realized through her classes, that my primary um, relationship with my body before that had been really forceful and getting it to achieve different things. Um, so that 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 was the start of my practice. Um, that same yoga teacher, she led a Zen meditation group um, uh, in Waterville, Maine, um, on Sunday mornings at eight AM, which I, as a college student, went to for my sophomore through senior years. Um, Not the typical hour for a college student to meditate, um, but that was also some of the beauty of it. And um, as well as uh, teaching me the individual practice, it also taught me a lot about Sangha because we would follow a sitting, then walking, then sitting meditation format, and then we would all have tea together. And it was just amazing the different people that that were brought together together through the meditation practice from woodworkers to plumbers to university administrators and professors to me as a student and then there was also a high school student that came sometimes and so you know we were all there for one practice coming from really different places of life but i felt a commonality with each other i feel really grateful for that experience of sangha
2: early on that's so great and let's turn to your book a queer dharma yoga and meditations for liberation so as i read it i was struck by the way you're applying dharma teachings to explore identity and the growing needs we have as a culture for diversity acceptance and inclusion and perhaps my first question would be then who did you write this book for
1: yeah thanks for that question i want to i actually write a paragraph about that in my book because the title could imply that it's only for queer people mm-hmm. um, but I write, this book is for my queer and trans community and siblings to see some of your own experiences reflected in these pages. This book is for straight and cisgender people to learn about how yoga practice is experienced and expressed through one queer individual with some different stories, reference points, and musings than you may be familiar with. This book is for fitness fanatics who poo-poo the spiritual dimensions of these practices. This book is for mental health workers who may not necessarily consider the body or who may suggest yoga to a queer client without knowing the potential harm you may be sending them to. This book is for white yogis who either don't understand why cultural appropriation is a problem or drop the practice entirely, afraid to be one of the quote, bad white people, end quote, who practice yoga or Buddhism. This is for my beloveds and colleagues of color An acknowledgement of harm and my complicity, a prayer for a world of equity, and a public commitment to steadfastly continue the work of racial justice. This is for those new to social justice movement work, hesitant to join, terrified of scathing critiques or being shunned in your not knowing. This is for my fellow social justice workers who need spaces and teachings to guide and hold your wary body, heart, mind. This is for all the martyrs out there who keep on keeping on until something breaks. Your partnership, your body, your resilience. This is for my queer comrades who are on the front lines of social change through art, philanthropy, theater, writing, scholarship, dance, and beyond. This is for those healing trauma through practice and those healing the sources of trauma through movement work. This is for the for the healers holding important, necessary, vital space for bodies, hearts, and minds, for you to be held too. This is for elders who have been grappling with, navigating, and exploring these teachings for many decades, and this is for the young ones, including and beyond my own beloved Giuseppe Nova, who inherit the work we have done and the beautiful bodies of practice and communities of belonging we have created, as well as our missteps and our failures. Very
2: beautiful and. Um, thank you for reading that. And even um, listening to that, I'm struck by how important some sense of community can be okay. so that you don't feel all alone in, in your floundering, you know, toward uh, finding a way. And then it struck me as um, what an odd time to be releasing a book that is so um, resting on the power of community, as it seems to me, in during COVID. <laughs> When we're not actually gathering and you had to release the book precisely in that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In some ways that was a blessing because, you know, I didn't have to travel to Germany or travel to London or all these different Mm -hmm. places um, Mm -hmm. that I could just have a singular online event um, and have so many different people from different aspects of my life present, you know, some of my teachers, some of my comrades, some of my students uh, present, um, and then I also got to run a virtual book club. I'm about to start a second book club, which is much the same can draw from all over the world. Um, and, you know, yoga is an embodied practice. I really miss being in person uh, with bodies and breaths mm-hmm. and, you know, able to feel people's hearts and their our, our nervous systems co-regulating.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm calling on your subtitle of the book. Um, and this is actually a very uh, profound question I think we can get into for a long time with a lot of different dimensions. I'm curious about your perspective on how the path and if the path toward liberation might look different for individuals whose gender identity or race or sexuality has not been honored by mainstream culture and also those folks who've been facing trauma and injustice because of it. And I ask that, as you know... Um, from lots of different angles, including loving-kindness practice, which is so important in my own work and my own practice. And um, the thousands of times I have been asked, (laughs) why should I try to have loving-kindness toward them? You know, they don't think I should exist. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, not only loving-kindness, but um, uh, in part, you know, loving-kindness and those other elements of The path about acceptance and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you know there's a deep understanding of suffering and and liberation from anyone who's been targeted by systems of oppression and and injustice. The sense of what love is and what love is not, and because we've been through it, subject Mm -hmm. to society's projections and dismissals and tokenism and violence, and have survived, and some of us have even thrived. There's some major determination and patience and kindness and integrity, which, you know, are all qualities of an awakened being Mm -hmm. um, described through the paramitas. And so I think we have, those of us who have been targeted by these systems of oppression, have wisdom and even magic to offer. Um, And in social justice work, it's commonly understood that those who are most impacted by an issue are those who are centered and who are in leadership. And it's mm-hmm. precisely because of that, that wisdom that that experience of being targeting targeted has, has created. Um, but at the same time, right, there's some healing to do along the way <laughs> um, mm-hmm. if we've been experiencing um, incessant injustice and, and ancestral trauma. that um, if we don't do that healing, then we're going c- to create havoc in our relationships and our movements and our sanghas um so there's there's a balance there and in terms of the like question of like how do i love the oppressor right Mm um i think it's important for me to like see see the system and then see the individual so see like Mm -hmm. the system of white supremacy and then see the individual white person or see the system of heterosexism and then see the individual straight person and what Loving kindness has taught me is to not give up on the individual, and to like know that there's some basic goodness in there, no matter how much um, harm they're inflicting on mm-hmm. the world, and to um, to be dedicated to their liberation as well, and knowing that it's not, it doesn't feel good to create harm. Like there's there's some suffering happening in the body, hearts, and minds that are leading mm-hmm. us into war that are, you know, perpetuating gun violence or whatever it may be. Um, and we can't, you know, I'm a, I'm a abolitionist, a prison abolitionist. And, and I know from the teachings of Angela Davis and Patrice Cullors and so many others that um, we can't shame, blame, and punish one another into freedom. Mm-hmm. And through the teachings of loving kindness, you know, we can love each other there. <laughs> Yeah. which is not to say that it's like always my work to love the homophobe into mm-hmm. loving queer people right that might be your work that mm-hmm. you can get mm-hmm. there because they might listen to you differently than they might listen to me um but i think it's important then to like consider collectively like which difficult people do we take on and invest in their goodness and try to win them over to
2: the other side in the process uh Thank you. And I, I've used that phrase actually. Maybe it's not your work, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and yet we would, I would like to think that it's someone's work, you know, to yeah. introduce compassion into a, a dynamic. And, but maybe it's somebody's work to survive, you know, or to grieve right. or whatever yeah. it might be at that time. So yeah. what I often say, you know, in, in response to that, um, question about loving kindness is that what I personally do is I go back to the, uh, at least the legend that surrounds the first teaching of loving kindness from the Buddha, which was that he taught us the antidote to fear. Mm -hmm. And that if I, or one starts to assume loving kindness means giving in or supporting or wishing for the triumph of somebody else, then it's mm-hmm. insane. You know, why would you do that? But that's intriguing. What if it is the antidote to fear? Right. You know, yeah. wouldn't that be good to introduce into that dynamic as well? Totally. Yeah,
1: and I think about Kate Johnson's retelling of that story in her book, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of how um, there may have been damage done by like those monks just moving into the forest and assuming that there is no one else there, that those forest spirits are like the, the community that was already mm-hmm. there and they mm-hmm. might feel encroached upon. And so, which to me just indicates that like there's so many um, things that we can do out of our privilege that's invisible to us. And so then, out of our loving kindness, can we seek repair, knowing Mm -hmm. that we're going to make mistakes and missteps, and allow that to protect us? That that devotion to loving kindness that eventually we can win one another's trust.
2: And on the issue of trauma, um, that also is is. uh, potentially a very long and yes. fruitful discussion because um, actual methodologies, you know, and, and approaches um, really need to hold that in, in some respect or regard, you know, or at least consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, you know, like there are a lot of situations which don't have a tremendous amount of flexibility. It's like, you're sitting there for an hour, you know, because that's what the schedule says. Uh, and then there are others that are more flexible. Or I can remember somebody saying to me once, um, she had done a retreat, not with me, but she was commenting on the general experience. And and she said, what you have to start thinking is that there's always trauma in the room, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not sort of wait for a visible sign of it just assume make that assumption yeah it's a good assumption so then what you know um tell me about the teaching that you do in that regard
1: Mm. yeah that's also how I approach any room that I teach on is to anticipate that there's that there's trauma here there's harm here there's dynamics of systemic oppression present in the retreat space even as we're trying to practice harmlessness Mm -hmm. and integrity um so i try to just speak to it and make it part of the offering you know i remember once at ims it was a um a silent retreat of course and there was um one white man who it was a winter retreat and and he every time he came in um from walk his walking meditation outside, he would do that right before lunch. And then he wouldn't wipe off his boots. And then there would be like puddles in the mm. lunchroom. And I remember seeing it was always um my partner who's a white, queer disabled woman, and um a couple of women of color who like three days in a row they were cleaning up his puddles. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I use that, I witnessed that and used it as fodder for my practice mm-hmm. of like Wow! Like I really want a community where that person is, where we're all responsible for our own puddles, (laughs) and where the people who have always had to do the cleanup work no longer have to do the cleanup work, but they can have a break. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the probably, we're not going to get there if I'm shaming that person Mm -hmm. or Mm putting punishing that person into it. Um, Trying to like how I would see transformation in that. Potentially in that moment is through like, say, a teacher meeting where one student is talking about that exp- experience of being on hands and knees and cleaning up someone's mess. And then that other student being like, realizing as she's speaking, oh, darn, that was my mess <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> that I had left unintentionally. And just witnessing one another in this heartfelt space, I think, can go a long
2: way. What do you think about silent retreats as a form in that regard?
1: I'm I'm curious about it. i um, because you know sometimes, sometimes I think that our our talking can create more division than mm-hmm. is necessary, especially in these divided times. And I really um, find refuge in the silence. Even you know I teach yoga at the annual LGBT retreat at Garrison Institute, and mm-hmm. so even in community like that, I really relish in the silence um, because I can feel what we have in common so much more easily than if we're speaking. And I learn, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, this person is like an older gay man who's also racist, or this person is like a young, young person who has a lot of ableism going on or whatever that like might create divisions in my mind or disappointments in Mm -hmm. different people. I find that there's, um, I have a better opportunity to hold one's basic goodness <laughs> in mm-hmm. silence sometimes more easily. Mm-hmm. But then there's also like very few teachers that are skilled to speak about the ways mm-hmm. that dynamics mm-hmm. of oppression can, um, can be present in those silent spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being on a retreat with um, Kitasaro and Tanisura, and there was um, you know uh, a BIPOC sit and there was a queer sit each of those every other day where queer folks would leave the main hall and go up to another space to meditate in and one day I was so excited about that and I went right up and I was like relishing in queer community and then the next time that came around I stayed in the room with mm-hmm. presumably all of the straight folks because I was like what is this going to be like this is going to challenge my heart and like what's going to come up And I actually found myself offering loving kindness to queer and trans people in the room. And that eventually Mm -hmm. led me to um, find space in my heart that these it's probably straight people in the room, but they probably just statistically have relationships with queer people as well, whether it's Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. best friend from high school or their child or their aunt's daughter or whatever. Um, And then that led me into... um, more fearlessness in the space with them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'd be curious of, I mean, I, I would love to hear what, what do you think about silent re- silent retreats as, as a forum, given how long you've been teaching them?
2: <laughs> um, I don't teach that many retreats anymore. I, I still love the silence. Um, And for me as a student, uh, you know, I, I uh, may go sit with a teacher and it's not a silent retreat and it's, pretty hard on me, you know, mm. to have uh expectations toward me, even though I'm I'm just there as <laughs> a student or um the conversations, you know, that uh don't exactly go away when the bell rings, you know, <laughs> and then and then it's right. sort of like I'm left with it and uh you know, I, I really appreciate the silence. I think, you know, it's so delicate anyway because um of so many things. One is uh, people are often reluctant to ask for help and you might need some help uh-huh. in a silent right. environment. It's weird, you know, <laughs> like, you know, nobody's looking at you. And, and uh, I mean, I really felt when we reopened after the pandemic, you know, that we needed to have a lot of support on hand uh-huh. for people because um, it's been weird anyway, you know, and people, yeah. Uh, have either been isolated or they've been working in the world in some fearful manner, you know, because right. of, of a lack of support and understanding and, and so many things. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of, it's hard. And I always encourage people to understand that a retreat is just one of the many forms. Yeah. And if you just had you know, some terrible experience and, barely processed it it's not the time most likely Mm -hmm. (laughs) to go off to a place where no one's going to be talking to or looking at you or Mm -hmm. you know uh it's just going to be like a pressure cooker right um you know so to be able to say i i want everyone to feel empowered in a way to say uh this seems like the time this doesn't seem like the time this seems like maybe it'd be better if i stayed home and is every day for an hour or, you know, 15 yeah. minutes or whatever it is? Um, and that, it's that kind of flexibility that
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: when I think of what I know of something like trauma-informed mindfulness or mm-hmm. trauma-informed yoga, a lot of it has to do with that kind of flexibility so that people yep. don't feel they've got to fit into this mold now and I'm failing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember Larry Yang at a retreat speaking um, – when he was initiating Noble Silence, he, it was at an LGBT retreat and he was talking. Just the context that he offered was so useful to say, you know, many of us here have been silenced mm-hmm. in this world out of systems of oppression. That is not what Noble Silence is trying to do. Mm-hmm. We're trying to give you space. Um, and if you find it oppressive, please reach out because it's likely that your history is coming up here. And mm-hmm. that there's nothing wrong with that happening. We're here to support you if that happens. But the intention is space rather
2: than silence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. So let's go back to your book for a moment. And, yeah, um, the first half covers a wide range of teachings, starting with acceptance and anger. So let's talk about acceptance and anger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I find that whenever I teach the Brahma Viharas, and I started studying and then teaching them because of your book, Loving Kindness, Mm -hmm. Um, acceptance, anger, and forgiveness always come up, um, especially amongst folks that are of targeted communities or social Mm -hmm. justice activists, because in some key ways that the teachings of social justice and the teachings of acceptance and common culture around anger really differ. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, trained in social justice where it's um, there's a common refrain that says acceptance is compliance with the systems of oppression Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Um, So there could be like a valuing of anger and rejection of acceptance amongst social Mm -hmm. justice cultures. Whereas in many yoga and Buddhist communities, especially those that are primarily white, there can be an overvaluing of equanimity or acceptance and a dismissal or bypass around anger. Um, so I've really had to come to terms with that, um, to grapple, to bring it to my teachers, to bring it to my cushion, and kind of my result is is those those chapters. I, I think it's really important to speak to anger in mm-hmm. spiritual spaces, um, especially given the longevity of so many of the systems of oppression that have you know go back generations. Um, And it can be such damage to silence one's anger. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what I write about in the book, right, is that underneath anger is exhaustion and a broken heart. Mm -hmm. And so as fellow practitioners, if we can sense that with one another, then, you know, you're more likely to stay with me if you can feel my, if you can sense my broken heart and not just my angry words. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And also, just in terms of studying the body and knowing something about neurobiology, it's important to honor that that potent energy of anger and then discharge it, let it move through us, so that by the time I have a conversation with uh, a friend who maybe said something hurtful, I'm not still, I don't, I, I'm not heated in the body or quick in my speech or, you know, really, really ready to put them in their place. <laughs> But I'm more coming from a place of a balanced and steady nervous system because I've done the discharge of that energy of anger. Um, but the wisdom of anger is so important. Um, and I think that's something that really gets lost in a lot of the stereotypes of, like, say, an angry Black woman. That, mm-hmm. that there's actually a wise Black woman there too, right? And there's just a fear of the anger and um, fear of the Black body that, that's present in our, in our stereotype there.
2: What I, um, generally say is that underneath that feeling of anger is often a sense of helplessness mm. and that's unbearable, you know, for most of us to feel. And so yeah. rather than, then thinking well, what's the one even seemingly small thing I can do to not feel so helpless. Uh, we, can get lost in a kind of anger that is ultimately really damaging ourselves, you know, because it's so on fire. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And our relationships, those closest are probably going to be the most impacted by our anger. If we're not, if we don't have practices to deal with it intentionally.
2: Forgiveness on, on the other hand, um, which you then move on to in the book, um, is very tricky you know the word <laughs> itself is just like we just at the time we we're recording this um we finished not too long ago uh this 28 day challenge we do on my website through my website every february and, and um each time you know I, I kind of just wait for the first question about forgiveness to come up and I'm <laughs> like don't use the word <laughs> you know because it's so Potent, and we have so many ideas. Uh, yeah. Maybe one of my favorite quotes is from Sylvia Borstein who said, forgiveness is not amnesia, mm. but we think it should be. Uh, and so it's such a, a terrible, terrible struggle. So I wonder if you could say yeah. something about forgiveness.
1: Yeah. Um, then
2: I'll just copy your answer. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I think what I've learned about it, I think... Uh, Gina Sharp really is a, has been a potent teacher for me and forgiveness, you know, a Asian and and black teacher um, who says that um, it's refusing to, to carry the burden of, of resentment around because Mm -hmm. that, that would do my individual body some harm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if I'm invested in my liberation, um, then I need to get through my resentment and my, and my anger um, and to a place of forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that I'm in, I can create some distance in my relationship with that person, right? Maybe it's like someone on the other side of the globe. Maybe it's someone that I'm never going to share a social space with again, but I'm doing the work in my heart to forgive them. Mm -hmm. So there's, I think that it's important to hold on to the, the wisdom, um, and and the lesson offered by the harm that happened, um, so as not to put ourselves in further danger, necessarily, mm-hmm. while at the same time softening our hearts, knowing that if I if I maintain armor around my heart, that's not just going to be present when I am in the face of my enemies, right? That's going to mm-hmm. be present when I'm in bed with my beloved. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's not going to help that relationship at all. And so if I'm devoted to being in right relationship with people, um, I need to heal all of the wounds. Because mm-hmm. if I don't, that's going to come out all over those that are that are closest to me, which is not to condone the violence that happened in the first place. Of course, we all want a world that doesn't have anti-Black racism, where there's no transphobic bills in state legislatures, where there's... Um, not continual sexual harassment of women in the, the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, again, we're not going to punish or judge or shame each other there. Um, for me, like forgiveness um, is allowing some space in our own heart and also not giving up on the humanity of someone, not giving up on the basic goodness of someone, mm-hmm. that each of us is so much more, to quote Brian Stevenson, than mm-hmm. the worst thing we've ever done.
2: What you're saying actually it reminds me, um, a lot of uh Malika Dutt, you know, who's a, a activist, um, working against violence against women. And um we met years ago, uh, on a panel. Someone just put on this panel together at a conference and and she was talking about the anger that had generated her kind of waking up and seeing how much work there was to do and then committing to doing the work. And and then she said, um, but I don't really know how to turn it off or dial it down. Mm. And then she said, this is what you had said that reminded me of this. She said, um, you see it all over our organizations. Yeah. You know, the backbiting or the way people don't really work together or things like that. And she said, we all probably could use some help just mm-hmm. dialing it down, you know, yeah. and not having it be so pervasive. Mm-hmm. And
1: doing the healing work and having that healing work supported by, by our organization. So it's not just mm-hmm. that like, I have to leave work and at 5 PM then I can go meditate. But what if meditation was offered at the beginning of every meeting
2: mm-hmm.
1: or, um, yeah. If like when some like, really terrible news came down as we like mm-hmm. stop what we were doing at the computer and just like come together in one space and hold hands and feel and mm-hmm. grieve what's happening. There's so many practices that we can um, enact collective care around um, in our workplaces so that they can become healthier organizations as well as taking on individual healing. You no, know, which is part of like why I offered the whole for, first half of the book. is just like, mm-hmm. we have, as, as queer people, as social justice community, we have so much healing to do. Well,
2: I think, you know, in uh, so many spheres, activists are undertaking more self-care, which yeah. of course used to seem just like the height of selfishness, but <laughs> <laughs> totally. um, as we get older, <laughs> you know, burnout and, uh, You know, it's so hard and and even some forms of spiritual practice as a means for sustainability are more acceptable in many, many places in society. And um, I wonder if you could speak something about that balance, you know, somebody who's so committed to uh, helping others, changing the world, so to speak, in Mm. a, a systems wide way and someone who has an individual practice.
1: Yeah. Um, well, some of my practices are rest, like both mm-hmm. in a daily way, making sure that I get adequate rest at night, as well as other, um, what my friend and, and teacher Sean Corn calls non- non-negotiables, non mm-hmm. um, things that I need to do for myself every day in order to show up for conversations like this or do the work that I do every day as skillfully mm-hmm. as I can. Um, I try to make room for joy to eat or cook something delightful for me being on a mountaintop is an incredible experience of joy or, you know, really um, spending time with my three-year-old and, and just watching the world through his eyes that like building a tower as tall as he is with his blocks is the most exciting thing that's happened Mm -hmm. all day. (laughs) And like, can I be present there for that joy rather than on my phone or rather than being like, like judging that of like, Oh, it's not, it's not as big as the, twin towers or you know (laughs) (laughs) um but that's one of the practices around joy right is to really be there for the good Mm -hmm. stuff um while not holding on to it so like knowing that like my kid might not might never build this great of a tower again so can I be present (laughs) for this one
0: Um,
1: and then I think like being less productive um letting myself miss a few emails you Mm -hmm. know um putting it in, in my email box that like, if you don't hear from me um, in a matter of time that uh, you need me to to respond, then email me again. Um, But I'm not going to be, you know, so beholden to my email that it's going to take away from the rest of my life. Um, And I, you know, I, I also see, especially in the field of yoga, some, so much work being done um, on rest in particular um, by Black women like mm-hmm. Tracy Stanley or Octavia Rahim or Gail Parker, um, because oppression is exhausting, right? And so communities that have withstood generations of oppression um, need to rest. And the, and the rest of us who might be allies, I feel like, you know, contributing in whatever way to, to them, to targeted communities, resting is a great act of of alliance. Mm-hmm. So rest and joy are my primary practices <laughs> around sustainability.
2: I was going to ask you about being a parent now. And it seems like rest would be less and joy <laughs> would be greater. <laughs> Is that true?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, less now that he's three years old, but certainly up until this point, there was, mm-hmm. um, I got very familiar with 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. and. <laughs> uh-huh. um uh, yeah, both. I, yeah, both joy is present every day, but also his frustration at like trying to do things that are like a little out of his developmental reach and getting frustrated, um, or wanting to be really self determined, but also still needing me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like my my practice is put to the test <laughs> every day, um, and in that, right, like I have less formal time to practice, less time mm-hmm. on the cushion. I feel like at this moment. You know, three years after having a kid, I I meditate for ten minutes a day and find that that's that's great. That's successful <laughs> for that day. Mm-hmm. That's enough. Um, but there's ample opportunity to practice off of the cushion and off of the mat to apply the the teachings to the trying moments and the joyous moments.
2: Mm-hmm. It's so great. <laughs> um you know these these last years have been so peculiar and so peculiarly hard um, and I keep hearing, of course, that the toll on mental health in general has been severe and and I wouldn't be surprised at all you know yeah. um, and uh again you know for for uh groups of people who are Subject to isolation anyway, yeah, uh, because of the story that is woven about them and who they are, and yeah uh, I'm wondering what you see and and how people are coming through this
1: mm. Mm. <sighs> yeah, I see our methods of how to connect with one with one another at least in people that I'm closest to has gotten much broader, mm-hmm. right? That like, if I can't have dinner with my best friends during Omicron um, surge, then mm-hmm. I can have dinner with them over a computer, you know, in virtual. Mm-hmm. But I think um, being committed to having time to connect and, and and finding creative ways to connect is so important to honor that we're, as human beings, we're really social. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think in that too, we can, there's, we have a lot to learn from chronically ill people and disabled people um, and immunocompromised people that, you know, have had these practices in place before the pandemic and were really mm-hmm. prepared for it, for the pan- pandemic. Um, and um, And I think also it's, it's opportunity to turn up the compassion and just, um, rather than like judging or shaming people when they can't show up, um, to a meeting or whatever it is, um, to just know that that's, that's because the times we're living in are really hard Mm -hmm. and if we can really up the ante in our, in our softness and bearing witness to one another's struggles um, that lends itself to connectivity rather than leading into further isolation, as you're, as you're saying. Mm-hmm.
2: I know that in your book, you give a lot of credit to uh, therapy in your own journey, which I suppose for a lot of people might still mean, you know, over Zoom or something like that uh-huh. in these days.
1: Yeah, and... Most people I know that are currently looking for a therapist, most therapists are like booked out right now because yeah. of the mental health needs yeah. in our world. And um, so most people looking for therapy, it's, it's really hard, I think, especially folks who are looking you know, for BIPOC practitioners specifically or disabled practitioners or have any kind of qualifications that they're looking mm-hmm. for. It's harder to find the, the right person. I feel really lucky that I've had some really good therapists. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that has come because I was skeptical of therapy um, to begin with dis- and discerning, knowing that um, uh, you know, g- gender dysphoria replaced gender identity disorder in the most mm-hmm. recent Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, um, but it's um, a state of being trans Uh, as far as the DSM is a mental disorder, it's gender dysphoria. Uh, So I have to go through this thing with every therapist that we talk about, um, how I need them to say that I have gender dysphoria to be covered by insurance. Mm -hmm, But at mm -hmm. the same time, I need them to not believe (laughs) that anything is inherently wrong
2: with me (laughs) because I'm trans. Go for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like my my social justice practice and my skepticism has really led me to find a really good therapist, mm-hmm. several great therapists, um, and that that if it if I wasn't already skeptical, I could have been led into mm-hmm. some of the wrong sessions.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I I think always about the role of community, and I think about the. Yeah really genius system that is AA, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, with all those different elements. I, I know in uh, teaching sometimes somebody has told me some story, you know, or it sounds really bleak, and I try to think what resources they have available to them to to help. And so every once in a while I look at someone, kind of hopefully say, anyone drink? You know, <laughs> maybe you can go to Al-Anon. <laughs> That um you know, between the fellowship and people being responsive to one another and the community and the practices, you know it's a pretty great system
1: yeah, yeah, totally, and just
2: the ways of being
1: um the the twelve step program. Uh, initiates people into, right, of, like, not giving advice, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, but offering one's own experience. I think there's such wisdom there. I'm always so excited when I have a student in recovery because they've already done such deep spiritual work. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So, uh, since my next question involved the word advice, I'm going to (laughs) quickly rewrite it in my head because you're correct, of course. Um, Do you have any... uh, Invitations for queer or trans folks who are meditating.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to tell queer and trans folks that are starting a practice that there's teachers out there who get you, who anticipate you. Um, I want to invite you to find us. We already love you. We await you. Um, I also want to invite you to be choosy as I was with therapy, right? To not settle with a transphobic or homophobic teacher or a teacher that's not ready to hold you in your fullness. Um, And that in that, if a teacher asks you to change anything about yourself or says that their way is the only way um, you can leave. And then I also want to suggest learning about trauma. For me, it's been really empowering to learn about the just neurobiology of the human body and the ways that trauma shows up and manifests in the patterns uh that settle into our bodies and hearts and minds uh due to trauma Uh, for me it's given me space to know that it's not my fault that i'm reacting like this it's what the human body does when it's overwhelmed it can't cope um uh, yeah. So, so learning about trauma, seeking out the books on trauma, seeking out trainings on trauma, because inherently systems of oppression are traumatizing.
2: And do you have any uh, invitations <laughs> for um, people who are looking for ways to become better allies to the queer communities?
1: Yeah, I have a number of them. The list could probably, that could be a whole conversation <laughs> perhaps as well. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, that we're giving you the annotated version. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah, to folks who want to be better allies, there's 266 bills in state legislatures right now that dehumanize queer people. And we need you to intervene to get involved. Um, queer folks are generally um, leading the fight And we're really overextended um, and overwhelmed um, at this latest wave of transphobia, especially all the, the the bathroom bills and the bills about trans athletes in in high schools. Um, We need your help. Um, And we can't do it alone. It's likely the family members and the colleagues and the friends of folks who want to be allies that are perpetuating this harm. So look around you and your relationships and notice, you know, where can you invite someone into Greater Alliance as well, who's perhaps been participating in, in enacting harm. Um, and then, you know, I want to invite you to not let a single homophobic or transphobic joke slip in your presence. There's comedians who build their whole careers on that kind of humor, which is dehumanizing. Um, so I want to invite you to intervene in that. And, and then getting involved with how does your kid's school Deal with trans kids. What are the policies and how can you as another parent support those kids? Um, Or similarly, we need you to get involved at your parents' nursing home or assisted living place and ask about how queer elders and trans elders are treated and respected. Um, Elder abuse is really rampant in our community. People come out for their whole lives and then are forced back into the closet in their nursing home um, because of the culture of the nursing homes. Um, And then, you know, supporting our organizations, look at the LGBT organizations in your area, learn about national projects like the Trans Justice Funding Project or Trans Legal Support um, Project, Um, support our organizations, support our leaders, support trans meditation teachers, trans yoga teachers. And then the last thing is just to educate yourself, to read my book, the There's a Buddhist uh, book of um, essays written by trans and non-binary folks called Transcending. Read that book. Watch the series Pose. Watch the documentary Disclosure. Just keep immersing yourself, educating yourself in our culture.
2: Fabulous. Thank you. Uh, And lastly, I would love for you to lead everyone listening in a guided meditation to close the conversation.
1: Sure. Sure. In the in the name of joy, I want to invite us into a mudita practice. Um, so often our nervous systems are drawn towards uh, the suffering in the world that uh, I think we need to create a counterbalance to that by noticing the goodness, the beauty, the brilliance as well. Mudita practice does that for me. So be in your body, whatever way allows you to Pay attention. And I want to invite you to consider something wonderful that has happened in your personal life recently, whether it was a beautiful sunset, a child's laugh, something absolutely beautiful that you saw or heard. And allow yourself to soak, soak it in, to remember the fullness of it. And then just offering to yourself, may this joy and success continue and grow. May I really be present to the beauty of this world. And when it's time to let it go, may I let it go. May this joy and success continue and grow. May I really be present to the beauty of this world. And when the time comes to let it go, may I let it go. I just repeat that a few more times to yourself if you want to edit any of the words you're welcome to so that's most resonant for you. May this joy and success continue and grow. May I really be present for the beauty of this world. And when the time comes to let it go, may I let it go. Repeating the words one more time in your heart. And if any doubt arises or any judgment of self indulgence, try to let that go. Try to train your awareness to show up for the goodness as much as you attend to the suffering knowing that you and we need that balance. And allow yourself to sit for just another minute or so in silence. I want to invite you to soften your body in any way you can. Perhaps allow the corners of your eyes or the corners of your lips to form the slightest smile. And just holding that smile. Trusting that it's good for your own nervous system, that you're releasing the feel good hormones right now, and you so deserve them. Allowing yourself to soak in the good feelings. Whenever you're ready to transition out of this meditation, You might move, you might take a deep breath, you might take a bow, saluting these practices that have been handed down through generations. Perhaps, especially, honoring those from South Asia, the cultures that these practices came out of, offering our gratitude. Thank
2: you. Mm, thank you. It's really beautiful. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. To learn more about Jacoby's work, you can visit Jacoby Ballard, J A C O B Y B A L L A R D.net, and get yourself a copy of his new book, The Queer Dharma, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. Did you read it? Did you read the audiobook yourself?
1: I didn't, but I hired um we hired I got to um have final say on who was hired and it's a black trans man from Brooklyn, so I'm oh, so nice. excited that he's reading it. I read the meditations and that acknowledgments. Uh, oh
2: good. A big thank you to everyone listening. This has been the Met to Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease.
0: Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.